You're listening to Journal Entries, a podcast about philosophy and cognitive science, where researchers open up about the articles they publish. I'm Wesley Buckwalter. In this episode, Georgie Gardner talks about her paper, Evidentialism and Moral Encroachment, published in the Springer volume, Believing in Accordance with the Evidence, edited by Kevin McCain. Georgie is an assistant professor in the philosophy department at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. She studies epistemology and metaphilosophy, and particularly the role of statistical evidence in social judgments. Suppose your friend is accused of a crime. Should you believe they did it? One way to answer this question is to look at whether your evidence justifies the belief that they are guilty. Another way to answer it is to consider what the morally right thing to do is in this situation. For example, maybe you think you should be loyal to your friend and stick with them no matter what. Traditionally, philosophers have thought that these two different domains are separate. But recently, philosophers have debated whether something being morally wrong can impact whether evidence justifies a belief in the first place, otherwise known as moral encroachment, and the topic of this paper. So this essay it responds to the challenge for moral encroachment. So to back up a bit there, we have this kind of orthodox idea in epistemology that when we're in our belief forming practices, we should sort of follow the evidence where it leads and we should align our beliefs with the evidence. So the amount of confidence that we have in a claim should be determined by things like, by these epistemic uh, con- con- um, considerations, sort of evidence and epistemic virtue and ability and the difficulty of the terrain and so on. And it shouldn't be affected by other things like how much is at stake morally or whether it'd be like a practically useful to belief to have or if the belief would make you feel better and so on. So that's the kind of orthodox picture. And moral encroachment is this idea that whether a belief is justified depends on moral facts, moral stakes and moral considerations of the case. My essay responds to that challenge for moral encroachment, partly by arguing some of the ways in which moral encroachment is a complicated claim that makes things complicated and has some costs and some problems, but mostly by undermining the motivation for moral encroachment. So looking at what motivates moral encroachment and then saying, well, these cases, then they're not that, the arguments are not so conclusive. It's, it's not such a strong case after all. So mostly I'm undermining the argument for moral encroachment. I got interested in the topic of moral encroachment really early by attending Athena in Action in 2016, um, this big conference of, for people working in, in philosophy, early career people, and Rima Basu presented her arguments for moral encroachment. And I think like a lot of people, I heard the arguments and thought this can't be right. And so I wrote an essay in response mostly to her ideas, and it was really early in the development of them. So in fact, some of when I was writing my essay, some of what I was responding to was drafts. Um, none of it was published, but in fact, some of it was actually still just emails between her advisor, Mark Schroeder, and her, where they were co-authoring a paper. And I was responding to, in my own essay, to their email exchange, as that was kind of anticipating what would happen in their essay. Um, so it was really, really early on. And I was writing for an invited, an invited chapter contribution for, for a McCain Kevin McCain volume on evidentialism. But in general, my orientation has been towards these applied topics. I think we can, I'm kind of really interested in these questions of ethics and the intersection between ethics and epistemology and our belief forming practice and so on. I have this general orientation that we can get the 
the right kind of results, like the results that we want about these important social applied topics by following the evidence. So we don't have to bend our epistemic practices or our belief forming practices around the kind of moral, social and political results we want. We can, um, we can sort of follow the evidence where it leads and then we'll end up with the, the kind of anti-racist, anti-sexist sort of the right kind of responses, the right kind of answers. And I think in doing that, we end up with a, a sort of a stronger footing in a certain way, because now we can sort of say of the racist views, they're the ones making the epistemic errors. We are really having this objective, hard nosed look at the evidence and we've got the anti-racist res uh, results. My motivations are really that I think that following the evidence is itself ameliorative, like the, the healing power of sunlight, like kind of just letting all the evidence form a better understanding rather than sort of hiding from certain facts. And then you'll have not only a better understanding with regard to epistemic things, but you'll also get the right kinds of results. And I, I just have this kind of instinct, it's like instinct that if we don't want to inquire about certain things for moral reasons or something like that, that could end up be having a kind of a toxic effect on our epistemic practices. There are a whole bunch of really interesting interactions between epistemic and moral normativity. I think that they are deeply related uh, domains, but I think that the way that they interact has to do with our broader epistemic agency. How do we inquire? What do we focus on? Where is our attention? And uh, about epistemic virtues and sort of our general sort of where are we putting in effort? What are we trying to learn about? And these kinds of questions. But these are all these broader questions of epistemic agency. In fact, there might even be moral factors affecting sort of what kind of broader understanding we should have, or perhaps what concepts we should have. And I think this is a really interesting question. What kinds of moral demands on the, could there be on our concepts? But these questions are all different from this other claim, the moral encroachment claim, which is that of a particular belief, whether that's justified, depends on moral facts, moral stakes, and moral considerations of the case. So the case for moral encroachment, the sort of arguments for moral encroachment are very often motivated with examples, these kind of vignettes. And perhaps the most classic example is the Cosmos, the Cosmos Club case, which was introduced into these kinds of debates by Tamer Gendler. So, and this is a real story, um, and it's described in John Hope Franklin's autobiography, Mirror to America. So in 95, he was being awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Bill Clinton. And the night before the award ceremony, he was hosting a celebratory meal in his um, very fancy, swanky DC social club called the, the Cosmos Club. So there he is hosting his friends, you know, having a nice time. And this woman walks up to him and hands him her coat check, sort of saying, please bring me my coat. And the way that it's described in the autobiography, she sounds a little bit haughty, a little bit rude. Right? Um, but of course, what's going on here is she's mistaken him for staff. He's not staff, he's a club member. And he's affronted by this. As you could probably already guess, a big part of what's happening is his race. He's black. And in, this, in the time, in the club that he's in, ev almost every other, perhaps every other uh, club member is white. When he joined, he was the only black uh, club member. I'm not sure about in 95. And then of the staff, uh, they're almost all black. So you know, DC is a very racially segregated area. And so she's 
seeing somebody who's black and then assuming on that basis that he's staff and he's affronted. That's the, that's the kind of case that, that motivates moral encroachment. So it's a case where somebody's being judged, as it happens in this case, falsely based on their race. And the thought is, her belief, this is the kind of the, the, the claim that this is the way that, that, that the moral encroachment advocates are going to motivate their, their case. They're going to say, look, her belief was justified when you're just looking at the evidence, given the social stratification, given the racial stratification of members and staff in the club, her belief was justified, but it was morally wrong, it was a moral problem. So there seems to be this tension between moral demands, not believing the staff, and epistemic demands, or at least epistemic positions, uh, permissions, believing that he's staff. And that's kind of how Tamar Gindler introduced the case, advocates of moral encroach, and just as a tension, she sort of doesn't particularly offer ways to resolve it, just introduces the tension. Advocates of moral encroachment, like Mark Schroeder, Nima um, Basu, Sarah Moss, Rene Bonner, will say, here's how you resolve the tension. There are these moral facts are actually affecting whether the belief is epistemically justified. The belief is not epistemically justified because of the moral facts. And so one way to unpack that is if you say, look, you have these two cases, right? If you could have two cases where the evidence is the same, the epistemic facts are the same in the two cases, case A and case B, but in one of them, there are these moral facts. And then in case B, it's morally neutral. There aren't these moral facts. If then there's a difference between the epistemic justification of the two beliefs, then that shows that the uh, moral facts are affecting epistemic justification. So that's the kind of test case. That's the way to test for moral encroachment. Now, of course, the Cosmos Club case is actually really, um, because it's a real life case, there's a lot of like nuance and complication. So it's actually not a particularly clean case, but you can sort of clean it up a little bit, make it sort of have, have fewer of these kind of messy, difficult details. Um, so, for example, one messy detail is that, uh, as he points out in the autobiography, all of the staff members in that club were wearing uniforms and he wasn't wearing a uniform. So she, in this case, she was ignoring the fact that he wasn't wearing a uniform and just sort of instead judging him based on race, just seeing race and overestimating the epistemic significance of race. Too much being too focused on race, which is, of course, a very ordinary, everyday epistemic error that people make all the time, right? But if you can have like two cases that are much cleaner, so much more simple, where it's just a matter of something like the base rates in one case and then the morally uh, neutral case. So if you had it something like, um, and then, but then it's, it's, it's harder to, to come up with those two cases than, than you might think. But the, the morally neutral case would just be something like, you know, in the next room, um, there's an Avery and you know that uh, say 95% of the birds there are yellow and the others are other color, and then you know that a bird has just died, then you now justified in believing that a yellow bird has died, right? Because probably a yellow bird died, like 95% of them, or you can make it higher, 99%. And then you contrasting that with the morally loaded case, you could say something like, um, instead the base rates have something to do with like race or staff or so on and so on and so on. Um, and then the thought is meant to be, if you can get a case that's, epistemically the same in every respect except also but then they have these moral differences if there's a difference in epistemic justification then that must um, be caused by the the moral difference so that's a kind of way of un unpacking what the moral encroachment well the moral encroachment is a bit of an umbrella term but this is the kind of the core moral encroachment idea uh, is getting at and I think that the Canary case makes this really crisp and really clear. 
is that the belief that a yellow canary died uh, is not justified by that kind of evidence. The belief that is justified would be that probably uh, it's a yellow bird that died. Right? But of course, there's a chance based on that evidence that it's some other bird. And so I think once we appreciate that about just the straightforward canary type case, then we can see, well, that's a big part of what's going on in these um, cases that putatively motivate moral encroachment, because actually the kind of evidence that's available is, um, it's actually at best, it's just justifying a belief about what's probably the case that John Hope Franklin is probably staff. And I say that's, that's the best it can um, motivate. And so then walking up to somebody and, and sort of handing your coat check over and saying, you know, bring me my coat based on there being probably staff. Well, that's kind of a, a moral problem, but it's also not something that purism is going to be saddled with endorsing. And in fact, it would reject it. a lot of versions would reject that kind of thing. So I think realizing the importance of how a lot of these, this evidence is inconclusive and it's at best it's supporting beliefs about what's probably the case is one really crucial way of responding to these kind of cases. And so undermining the, the, the motivation for moral encroachment. In terms of objections to moral encroachment, I, one of the things that I say is Things get really complicated really quick if you let moral factors affect uh, whether a belief is justified, especially if it's sort of independent from any action and it's just the belief itself is, is the locus of evaluation. It's the belief itself, even if the woman never acted on it, is the, the causing this uh, moral problem that then has this epistemic effects. Things get really complicated really quick. And um, you know, Rima Basu will reply like, yeah, that's my view. <laughs> that's, that's not an objection, you're just restating my view. Right? Um, but I think it, the, the, it does get really complica complicated really quick. And this is seen in this explosion of different moral encroachment views that took off. And I think maybe part of the reason here is that this kind of complication is inevitable, partly because the structure of the two normative domains is different. Now, this is, isn't something that I say in the essay, at least it isn't explicit in, or it's unpacked in the essay. But in the, when we think about like moral normativity, moral shoulds, we have, just for one example, all of these questions about well, what kind of world are we aiming for? All these future directed questions. What kind of person do we want to be? So in the, do we want a world where in the Cosmos Club case, it's it's, there's not much racial difference or no racial difference between who's staff and who's a member? Or do we want uh, a world where it doesn't make any difference to, to social status, that people aren't um, seen as kind of lower on a hierarchy because they're staff rather than club members? Or do we want to be in a place where there is no such thing as the Cosmos Club case, or there is no such thing as weight staff, right? We have these future directed kinds of questions. But then if what we're doing is, and these are all different moral, not morally normative questions, right? And if we want to bend our epistemic normativity to meet moral norms, it raises these questions, well, which moral norms? How future directed? Do we want to form beliefs as though the, we, aiming towards a society where we have uh, no racial difference in the makeup of kind of who's in the upper classes and who's in the lower classes? Or do we want it that there aren't classes, for example, there aren't, you know, fancy clubs and so on. So I think that the, this is just one example of how the structure of the two normative domains are different. Not just they are responsive to different facts in the world, or they have different directions of fit, your belief to world and world to belief or something, but like they're very, normative structure is different and so just using that idea that, that moral norms can be future directed in a way that epistemic norms at least once about whether a belief is justified 
aren't. And I think that example also points to another, and that discussion points to another feature of this kind of case for moral encroachment. This isn't an objection to moral encroachment as such, but rather um, a, an objection to the way that it's motivated, is that it's somewhat reflective of the values of the professional class and maybe doesn't properly reflect the values of the working class. So a lot of these examples are using social status and um, professional pressure. And it's slightly discussed as if there's a kind of stigma attached to being, say, staff as opposed to a club member. And I think this is, this is common to a lot of academic work where it doesn't properly, um, I think, reflect the kind of the concerns of, of financial justice, class justice, uh, economic inequality, and so on. And it's a too concerned with social status, I think. So it's not clear to me that wage staff would find the cases particularly motivating. And in fact, when I teach these kinds of examples to my students, to the University of Tennessee students, they're really passionate about this point, right? And they think, well, there's nothing wrong with being mistaken for staff. You know, they're staff. So they don't, um, they don't, they're not sort of taken by the cases in quite the same way. They don't think that this is something, they think that there's something wrong with what the women did, of course, but they're, they're less motivated by the idea that the real problem is, is believing somebody's staff based on inconclusive evidence. And I think, you know, from my own experiences of being wait staff, I think wait staff tend to feel a bit superior to club members, right? They think, well, gee, this is an $80,000 wedding. I could have thrown a much better party with $80,000. You know, I have much better uh, values and judgment than these, than these people with their canapes. And just to be clear here, I mean, there are definitely problems. So it is a problem that people are systematically mistaken for staff based on race. I think there are problems there and there are including um, that the consequences where then you, you aren't getting as many kind of job opportunities because you're not being, a, for example, just, you know, you, the, the other club members aren't approaching you with, with offers of um, to make contracts because they're assuming your staff or something like that. So there are definitely problems. But I think that these a lot of these problems can just be explained as, as in ways that aren't going to um, be in tension with purism, that partly it's when people are just in general paying too much attention to race and not focusing on other kinds of evidence, right? They're just too much judging people based on race. So I do want to, I don't want to sort of say what she did was totally rosy, um, even aside from her rudeness or apparent rudeness. Uh, and it's not totally, of course, it's bad that people are mistaken for staff uh, so much based on race. In fact, but even to this day, even Obama, he's he reported that he's still mistaken for staff if he stands outside a, a posh club in, you know, a, a dinner jacket. People hand him uh, their car keys and so on. So, but this is just illustrating the point that people are judging based on race. They're failing to notice that's Obama standing there. Instead, they're just seeing that's a black man standing there. He must be staff. And then even in the sort of John Hope Franklin case, the Cosmos Club case, which is the sort of one of the main examples used to motivate moral encroachment, the thought is meant to be, well, this belief was impeccable by the lights of orthodox epistemology. And that's actually an expression that, that is used uh, by Mark Schroeder, the part, the impeccable part. But actually, if you look at that case, well, first of all, he wasn't wearing a uniform. He was sort of dressed smartly for an evening out and all the staff were in uniform. But also he's 80 years old and he's kind of hosting his friends at a party. So presumably his his behavior and conduct would have been very different from that of a staff member and so on. So she's ignoring all this other kind of evidence and instead just focusing on race, which is this ubiquitous and very ordinary, normal epistemic error that people make all the time.
And so these cases are really thin. Uh, they don't, they're just like a paragraph. They have to be, right? Uh, this sort of, they have, that's kind of how philosophy typically works. But as a result, they omit all these important details about like, well, for all we know, like, you know, maybe in that kind of case, she's talked to him before, right? And that kind of thing, it makes all these details. And so one thing that I think readers do is we read those uh, examples, filling in the details as they most, perhaps the most naturally normally filled in. But in that way, uh, we're filling in all these other kinds of moral errors. So like, she just sounds really snooty. She sounds really snobby. We assume that she has these ideas of like social hierarchy where somebody whose staff is kind of underneath somebody who's, who's a club member and so on and so on. But then the case is then, so we fill in all these details, but then somehow are supposed to take on board that the, the beliefs are supported by the evidence. The belief is kind of impeccable by the lights of epistemology. And that itself could be kind of methodologically suspect because we're assuming a whole bunch, we're sort of importing a whole bunch of ordinary moral understanding to condemn the, the person, but then stipulating that the belief is supported by the evidence. A really crucial part of resisting moral encroachment and sort of retaining this purest orthodox view that we should be following the evidence where it leads is highlighting, underscoring just how ubiquitous these epistemic errors are. They're absolutely everywhere, especially about these kinds of morally loaded beliefs. And I think this plays a couple of different roles. So one is, insofar as we're giving this, this sense that, oh, following the evidence where it leads, leads to these kinds of beliefs that say racist or sexist, I think that massively overestimates the rationality of these racist beliefs. I think these beliefs aren't justified. They're not rational. And so Basu leads with these kind of the, her papers, her thesis with this idea of this person who's looked at the, the evidence and has formed these beliefs based that, you know, uh, African-Americans tip less on average or something like that. And then we have this general sense that a lot of beliefs will be like that. You can really find out a lot of evidence and you'll still have these beliefs that are reputatively racist in these ways. But I think there's this ameliorative power of learning more and if we learn more, we'll see that although there are a lot of beliefs that are racist, the epistemic error is ubiquitous. They're not supported by the evidence at all. They're just rampant. They're making all these rampant epistemic errors. And in fact, I think it's giving far too much credit to these racist views in a certain sense to even have these discussions or present these as a problem, right? Because a lot of these beliefs say about uh, race with regard to crime statistics, they're not actually based on crime statistics, they're not actually based on base rates or data. And so we say, oh, these people have these, these um, beliefs based on, on data. They're not based on data at all. They're based on associations and stereotypes. What do people tend to think of? And we can see that with, by looking at what the actual data is. So people, they, um, there's this classic kinds of examples where people will cross the street, for example, if somebody approaches them at night who say a black man or women will clutch their purses uh, closer to them in an elevator. And these, this kind of conduct is really terrible, but then advocates of moral encroachment will think, well, but the, the, there's kind of, at least for some kinds of cases, the, the evidence will, will support that kind of, um, will sort of support the idea that there's, that there's an association between race and crime. But I think this is thoroughly mistaken. And so to even take these kinds of this behavior uh, this seriously is, is making is kind of doing quite much credit to these racist beliefs. So if you take something like a stranger on the street walking towards you, well, first of all, almost certainly 
they're just walking home or they're just out for a walk or whatever. The overall participation rates in crime, at least of that kind, of the kind of violent crime to strangers, is extremely low. And even if there's a racial difference, the racial difference is going to be tiny compared to the overall lowness of the numbers. So the magnitude is absolutely minute. And then there might be a tiny race difference. There might not be. I'm not sure. But then if we're going to respond differently to black men and white men walking down the street, this is a massive epistemic error. Because even if there's a difference in the race, uh, race-based difference in crime participation, it's going to be tiny uh, compared to the kind of overall magnitudes. And the overall magnitudes are tiny. So this is the kind of er area where we have these errors. But notice these beliefs really they're not based on data at all. They're just based on associations and stereotypes and these kind of racist connections that are forged in the mind. So that's the kind of error that I think is really ubiquitous and can, can sort of make it seem like evidence points to, to racist, to justifies racist beliefs when in fact it doesn't. And I think it's, it's worth really highlighting just how ubiquitous these errors are. So you, you can see an error like uh, using the wrong base rates happens all the time. And so the kind of example I have in mind here is, suppose it's true, and I, I don't know, but suppose it's true that the majority of uh, air, airplane-related terrorist attacks are committed by Muslims. And then when people see him, uh, somebody who's Islamic on a flight, they, that they take to be Islamic on a flight, they then worry or they make this association and what seems to be happening there is some kind of, you know, what you could interpret that as they're thinking something like most Muslims engage in airplane terrorism, airplane based terrorism. Now, that's like clearly an error and obviously an error. It's using the wrong base rate, it switched base rates. That one, it should be completely clear that it's an error. But you see that error happen even in published essays advocating for moral encroachment. That error happens all the time. Um, and so this is just one example of how bad people are at statistical reasoning. Of course, it's not such a flagrant version of that error, but there are versions of that error. And so we, we have this idea that these statistics, these uh, statistics can support these, these kind of morally bad beliefs, but they really don't. And so I think like a lot of these uh, orthodox epistemic errors are also rooted in this broader understanding, the kind of explanatory picture of the world that we have. And so somebody might form a belief um, but then there, there are all these, and it seems like uh, perhaps let's say it's supported by the evidence, but they have a whole bunch of other background beliefs linking up to that belief. And it's, and those background beliefs are mistaken and they're not supported by the evidence. And so insofar as we have this sense that there's moral errors and epistemic errors, it could be in the broader, located in the broader background beliefs. And so if we take beliefs, uh, so Jesse Munton has some really nice work on this about the broader explanation of certain social facts. So if there's something like that gay men tend to pass on sexually transmitted diseases at higher rates than straight men, for example, um, they might have that belief and that might be a justified belief, but then the broader explanation of that claim could be misunderstood. And so they'll think it's because, say, there's something inherently dangerous about about homosexual sex, or there's something inherently irresponsible about um, the, the sort of social behavior of, of gay men or something like that. And so it'll be kind of that belief that could be true is interpreted in this broader understanding that's false. And so notice if you have that kind of mistake in your broader understanding, 
one thing that could happen is the, the, the social fact that you believe that is in fact true and you believe it for good evidence, you could then start using that poorly in your future inferences. So now you could start inferring things about gay men that you, you shouldn't be inferring or something like that, or inappropriately using that to predict in the future. And so she has this really nice example to illustrate this, where suppose it's true that most Chinese elms in the US only grow to two feet tall, uh, say like 95% of them or something like this. And that's a true fact. Uh, but it's true because 95, the 95% of them are grown as bonsai trees. So they're grown in little pots and that means that they're not growing tall. And now suppose that the, a little bonsai tree, sorry, excuse me, a little Chinese elm starts growing in the garden outside. And somebody says, well, don't worry. And then, and then the homeowner sort of worries that it's going to grow really large and sort of destroy the foundations of the house, or it's going to sort of dominate the, the garden or block the light from, from reaching into the living room or, or something like this. And then the friend says, oh, don't worry about that. It's a Chinese elm. And you know, almost all Chinese elms, they only grow to less than two feet tall in America. They, so that's not going to block your light. It's not going to dominate your garden. It's a Chinese elm. You know, 95% of them in America only grow to less than two feet tall. So here we can really clearly see the kind of error that the friend is making. They have this true fact about the base rates of Chinese elms with regard to their height. But the kind of understanding, the broader understanding, the explanation of that fact is lacking. And so he's now misapplying it to this, bond, this tree out in the garden, which isn't in a pot and so could well grow to its ordinary height of presumably pretty tall. It's a tree. I don't know how tall they grow. So that's the kind of, and again, that's like a, a silly kind of example, but it's to illustrate this idea that we can have these true facts, but if they're embedded in an understanding or an explanation, explanation that's mistaken, we're going to start making errors when we then apply them to novel cases. We're going to uh, have errors of induction. So that's her kind of example. And she describes how maybe some of the feeling of, of epistemic error that we feel when somebody says something about, say, the the sexually transmitted infection rate among gay men. We feel that there's some error. We feel that there's some mistake. And she says, look, maybe the kind of error is actually located in that broader understanding. The feeling of error is located, excuse me, in the broader understanding. And so now we can diagnose why we feel that there's something wrong with those kinds of beliefs. And we can sort of uh, explain away the sense of the problem with having those kinds of beliefs when they're true and supported by evidence. And then in a very different way, that's the kind of the um, same kind of idea that I'm arguing in the last section of my paper, where I really draw attention to the role of the epistemic role of understanding. And I say, look, there could be these social facts that seem uh, that seem kind of like we shouldn't have them. There's something wrong with believing them, right? And so I use this as an example. Well, look, suppose that. It's true that on average, men are, uh, your boys are less, are better at maths than girls. Suppose that's true. Well, if it's true, then it's, there's nothing wrong with believing it. We should just need to embed it in an understanding which doesn't denigrate girls uh, based on the basis of maths capacity or something like that. We should just embed it in a non-sexist understanding. And the problem with that kind of belief, if it were true, would be that it would be for many people embedded in a sexist understanding, one where that just shows that women are sort of less intelligent or something like that. I described right at the outset, look, I have this orientation that following the evidence where it leads, having these kind of objective perspectives is going to lead to the right kinds of beliefs and the right kinds of um, perspective on the world. 
So I think sometimes there are these ameliorative or beneficial effects to using base rate evidence and social statistics kinds of evidence. So, so for one is, well, we want to sort of put, put um, resources where they'd be most beneficial. So in the schools where people that have a more of a school to prison pipeline, we want to put certain kinds of resources. This is partly using kinds of profiling. We're, we're using the social base rates to say of particular students that we want to now target them for particular help, particular kinds of assistance. And then also these, the fact that there are these racial disparities about who's, who's stop and frisked, who's arrested, who's, who's found guilty and so on. That's not just some kind of abstract facts about society that has real bearing on real individuals living in society. And so when we see somebody who's say African-American of them, there's a, then at least in some cases, they have these higher increased chances of things like ending up incarcerated, right? Because of their race. And it's not just affecting a social statistic, it's affecting their chances. And so if people who are say first generation college students, they're going to be more likely to drop out or they're not going to be less likely to go to college. And so if we meet somebody who's some, say, for example, a first generation college, a first generation college student who then becomes a professor, the base rates, the unlikelihood of that, the, the small number of um, first generation students among the professoriate itself can help frame their accomplishments and so kind of highlight the sort of extra difficulties that they probably encountered. But all of this is a kind of profiling. It's using these base rates and social statistics to judge specific individuals and the probabilities concerning specific individuals. I think it can also help to sort of help interpret people's behavior. So we can see, well, if somebody acts in this certain way, then maybe part of what's happening is, so perhaps, so perhaps for example, somebody writes an email to a professor in a slightly informal way or something like this i mean i actually obey informal with my students i don't mind that stuff but but it could be that suppose you thought there was a problem with that well the fact that they're a first generation student could help you interpret why they did that and so better understand why they did that so i think one really nice place for the future for this research is I've said, look, in any case where there seems to be a moral problem, we've found some epistemic problem, right? Like she's ignoring the evidence. He's, he's wearing um, a dinner jacket and all the staff are wearing uniform or something like this. So what I'm wondering is this is kind of a binary claim. It's saying like, there's a, yes, there's a moral mistake, moral problem, but notice is also epistemic mistake, epistemic problem. And so it's not a threat to purism, to evidentialism. But I wonder whether this is too coarse grained and that there might be a place in the discussion in the literature to go to where it talks about proportionality. So maybe like a big moral problem, but only a very small epistemic problem, for example. And there could be, could there be a way of motivating moral encroachment using that kind of disparity or that difference in sort of degree of, of problem, of, of magnitude of problems? So I think that would be a nice place for advocates of moral encroachment to start pressing. If they can find a case where there seems to be these terrible moral wrongs and tiny epistemic wrongs, then maybe we have the kind of disconnect between epistemic and moral norms that could motivate moral encroachment. But my own personal interests is I've become a lot more interested in broader features of epistemic agency. And so in particular, things like moral demands on attention and epistemic effects of attention. And so the epistemology of attention and really trying to think of epistemic virtues with regard to attention. So I work a lot on the epistemology of rape accusations, for example. And I've noticed whenever I teach that, or whenever I do research on that, people really quickly bring up 
well, what about false accusations? What about false accusations? You have this like spectra of false accusations and then the costs of false accusations to the accused, for example. And I think this is important, right? So I'm not trying to say it's not important, but it seems to be disproportionate attention. It can really dominate an entire Q&A period, an entire classroom. And so there seems to be something that people aren't, say, thinking about the costs of um, not believing accusations that are true or something like that. And so we have this kind of, where is our attention going? And this is a question that has to do with the intersection of epistemic norms and moral norms that isn't... Um, moral encroachment, it's not just about whether a belief is justified at a time given the evidence, it's more about our epistemic conduct, our epistemic um, character, uh, trajectories and behavior and so on. So that's what I'm at the moment. And then also the, the moral and epistemic contours of how to interpret our own behavior, our own experiences, how to interpret other people. And also what concepts we should even have. So I think we have these kind of, I think that we could have this kind of orthodox purist kind of evidentialist orientation towards how we should interpret our behavior. I mean, purism is, is a pretty narrow claim about whether a belief is justified by the evidence, but sort of in terms of orientation, like following the evidence where it leads and aligning beliefs with the evidence and so on, but about kind of interpretation and broader understanding. And then in particular, what, what kind of concepts should we have? Uh, how should we, um, the concepts of sort of how we, how we think about the world, like the tools that we use to think about the world, are there any moral and epistemic constraints on those? And how can we adjudicate which concepts are better and worse um, using these kind of epistemic and moral ideas of what's a better understanding? So we want our concepts, we want our concepts to help us better understand the world. That better, is that sort of an epistemic better? Is that like a moral better, having like a morally better understanding? So I'm really interested there in the sort of, shaping of concepts but again this is all parts of these like broader areas of epistemic agency and cognitive agency that's it for today's episode visit our website at journalentries.fireside.fm for more information about georgie garner her work and some of the resources mentioned in this episode 